0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we're exploring one of the most important topics when it comes to our personal happiness, achievement, and general social functioning, emotional intelligence. And we have the absolute pleasure of speaking with one of the most influential people in that very important field. Today we're joined by two very special guests, Dr. Daniel Goleman and Michelle Nevarez. Dr. Goleman is an internationally known psychologist and the author of many works in the realm of emotional and social intelligence, leadership, and meditation, including the many, many many-time bestseller, Emotional Intelligence. Prior to that, Dr. Goleman reported on the brain and behavioral sciences for the New York Times for many years. Michelle Navarre specializes in positive organizational development and executive coaching and heads Dr. Goldman's emotional intelligence coaching and training programs. It's great to have you guys on the show today. How are you doing? Wonderful to be here. Thanks, Forrest.
1: Likewise. Really nice to be here. Thank you. Fantastic.
0: So I have to imagine that most everyone listening to this has heard of emotional intelligence in some capacity, whether because they've actually read your book or because they've just heard it sort of in passing in an article or something like that. But to kind of get us on the same page, I would sort of appreciate it if you would start by offering a framing definition. So doctor, how would you kind of describe emotional intelligence and why is it so important that it's different from pure IQ?
2: Sure. There's several models of emotional intelligence in mine Basically what it means is how we handle ourselves, how we handle our relationships. It's, it's human skills, basically. It's self-awareness, there are four parts. Self-awareness is the first. And of course, meditation is an application of that. But there are many dimensions to self-awareness. Using that self-awareness to manage ourselves well, that's the second part, to stay motivated, keep our eye on the goal, not be distracted, not be you know, overcome by upsetting emotions, but be calm and clear. The third is empathy, tuning into the other person. And the fourth is using all of that together to have effective relationships.
0: That's a great breakdown of the different elements of it. My first sort of question for you is, how do these four elements interact with one another? Sure. To produce kind of pure emotional intelligence? Because I could imagine a scenario where one of them could be prioritized differently from another, could get in the way of another, something like that. I wonder if that's an issue that you've run into.
2: I think they're completely interactive and build on each other. So self-awareness statistically, it turns out to be the key element, even though it's the least visible. Mm. But it's the basis of how you handle yourself. If you're tuned out of yourself, you won't notice, that oh, I'm getting really upset now, or whatever it is. And it also, if you're tuned out of some range of your own experience, it's harder for you to pick that up in another person. And by the way... These skills differ dramatically from purely cognitive skills, the kind of thing, Mm. IQ measures. Mm -hmm. These are uh, a kind of value added over and above how well you did in school. And in the workplace, this matters enormously because no matter what you do, you're going to be in a field where everybody else has done as well as you have. Mm. You know, whether you got an MBA or you're an accountant or whatever it is you do, Everyone has about the same ability to handle the cognitive complexity of what's going on. The differentiator turns out to be how you handle yourself and your relationships. Mm. Are you a good team member? Can you be a leader? Can you keep your eye on the goal? Are you distracted by this and that all the time? or Are you paying full attention right now?
3: That's interesting that in a way, especially these days in a changing world, the competitive edge is the human edge. It's not just pure intellect, right? Because everybody's smart, sort of at your level. Yeah. But uh, to really be competitive, it's that combination of, as you well know, interpersonal intelligence and intrapersonal exactly. intelligence working together synergistically.
2: Yeah, it's, it's the differentiators. And, and I know this because I've studied uh, what are called competence models. These are analyses companies do of their own people to see who are our stars what do the stars look like what are the abilities they have because they want to know what should we look for in people we hire and people we promote people we develop and you know even very high iq outfits like google will say you know he may be a brilliant coder but nobody pays attention to him he doesn't know how to influence anyone he doesn't know how to be a team player in other words if you don't have this set of human skills you're going to be left behind no matter how smart you are.
3: Yeah. So Dan, one of the things I've found really most inspiring and moving about your work, which I encountered soon after it was published initially, right, around 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And also, interestingly, because we have a shared interest in meditation, I looked up some of your very earliest papers Mm -hmm. and found that you had done EEG studies on meditators in the mid-70s, which I found incredibly impressive. And I've also recently read Altered Traits, which walks through some of your background. And that's a book I really encourage people to get and to read. It's, it's both very personally useful, as well as extremely interesting as kind of a history from someone who was there when most of it happened, you know, <laughs> yeah. over the last 30 All or 40 right. years uh-huh. uh, in consciousness and self-help and psychology, including the best research in that area. So that's a long way of getting at. I'm curious, what would you say are the key things that people can do on their own to develop EQ in general?
2: The book Altered Traits, which is really science of meditation, it explains how I tried to do research on this when I was a graduate student at Harvard. Nobody cared. It was yeah. way too
3: soon. <laughs> it was impressive to read yeah, the background. Yeah, it was like,
2: oh, this guy, it's like a career-ending move. He'll go <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> And uh, today, of course, like a 1,000 studies a year on mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. So it's really a different age that we live in, vis-a-vis meditation. But I think I'd like to pass this question over to Michelle. Right. Because it's really a question about how do you apply this? How do you grow it?
1: Perfect. So part of what Dan and I have been doing the last few years is is answering this question in real terms in terms of how to help people not just understand what is emotional intelligence intellectually, but how to take it on board, how to have it land relative to one's own personal life and professional life. And we've put together a model within our program that is learn, apply, and reflect. And so in a way that people can sort of digest something small, about one of the foundational skills or how they work together, whether it's through a video or an article, and then they get an immediate application. So, for example, if they're learning about an amygdala hijack and how does that work at a brain level, at least in terms of what they need to know, then we'd ask them, go notice. Go notice your triggers. What are the people, the situations that you find are jangling your amygdala, you know, and and causing you to, to be off-center and asking them to observe that in their own lives, both at work and at home, and then finally to reflect on it. And, and, and we encourage this day in and day out.
0: That's great. I mean, I think that that offers a great framework for learning in general and a really good structure inside of it. What really stands out to me about what you're saying here is you're highlighting the importance of kind of metacognition, right? You're an awareness of the internal processes that are going on inside of the body. So that might be one key element of growing your sense of emotional intelligence is being able to become increasingly metacognitive. What are some of the other key elements that kind of help us do that?
1: You bet. So I would lean heavily on the what we call sort of the meta skills. And these are just techniques, micro techniques of. For example, being able to learn how to understand what's going on inside of your body, interception, they call it, but mm-hmm. looking at how emotions impact us on a physical level. So when I feel something, your body is usually the first signal, You know, gives you all kinds of signals. And if you're paying attention to those, then often what can happen is there's a, a space that can be created between stimulus and response. And ultimately... All of the practices and micro-techniques are in service of making that space more visible to us as individuals because if you really look at where is it that we have our personal agency or the ability to influence the next moment, it's in that space again and again and again where we choose and we have that presence of mind. It's an opportunity. It's not a given. And that's why we have to practice it again and again.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you caught this or not, Michelle, but I actually just turned to Rick and kind of laughed for a second. The reason you. that I did <laughs> is because I gave literally that exact same sort of rundown of the importance of kind of the difference between your stimulus and your response to it and the space <laughs> between those two in a previous podcast episode and one of just the last ones that we recorded.
2: Interesting. One definition that comes from Paul Ekman of maturity is widening the gap between an emotional impulse, and all emotions have an impulse to act embedded in them, between impulse and action. Yeah, A stimulus and response, you could say.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and, I mean, for me, at least, that's been very much a focus of these runs of episodes that we've been doing. It's about becoming increasingly self-aware so that you can intervene prior to having a for lack of a better way of putting it, a reaction that then dictates your next couple of actions. Exactly. Which sort of flow naturally from there. So I just thought that was really interesting and really wonderful that you pointed to that, Michelle. If you were going to pick one thing, Michelle, Mm -hmm. to
3: help a person steepen their growth curve over Mm -hmm. the course of a day that a person could do themselves. Mm -hmm. So here's a person moving through their workday or moving through their life, raising a family, whatever their situation is, that could really help that person grow as much as possible in terms of the social-emotional learning you're talking about here. Grow as much as possible over the course of the day. What would be that one highly catalytic practice or thing you would suggest?
1: Well, there are a few of them, but the the one that I would say here that you could truly do on your own, you don't have to be paired up with somebody you know, to do it, because otherwise I'd pick just like me. It's a profound exercise. But if you're doing it on your own, then the well-wishing practice. And and just a simple version of this would be to visualize, you know, someone who is close to you. uh, Maybe they're going through a tough time, maybe they're not, but you visualize this person and you send them well-wishing. So you know, may they have happiness and and the causes of happiness and may they be free from suffering and the causes of suffering, for example. But by visualizing them, it really sort of brings it to life. And then You expand that to whatever largest circle is possible for you, whether that's everyone or all beings or whatever resonates. And then finally to oneself. And I think that's usually the hardest turn of the wheel to to wish oneself that. Ironically, when we do this practice with people, that's you'll see people tearing up or kind of that's where the emotion is at for folks because they don't think of themselves usually in that equation.
3: So it's really striking to me that you're focusing on basically a lovingness practice that has a moral element of benevolence in it. And why do you think it is? Why do you think it's effective and so catalytic for personal development to practice such warm-heartedness?
2: Maybe you're familiar with this, Rick, but there are three different kinds of empathy. The first is just cognitive empathy. I understand your perspective. I understand how you see things, how you Put the world together. What terms you use, you can be a very effective messenger. You can send good, uh, effective communications with that on target. The second is emotional empathy. I feel with you. I know what you're feeling because mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. it too. That's very powerful. It creates a lot of rapport. But the third is the one Michelle is talking about. I think is the most important of all. It's called empathic concern. Technically, each of these is instantiated in different part of the brain. Different networks and circuits. And the empathic concern shares the caretaking circuitry we share with other mammals that parents love for a child. And I think that this is underdeveloped in our culture and in all too many people, and especially, oddly enough, the self-compassion you're talking about at the end, you know, where people tear up. It's like, oh, you know, my self-talk is also negative. So actually, it's not just interpersonal, Rick. It, it actually comes back to you. And I would add, you know, another method people can use during the day, of course, is mindfulness. And you've written about that a lot. And Michelle, you use it in the program too. But mindfulness simply means you're paying attention to what's going on in you and around you and with the people you're interacting with. You're fully present. And that allows you to gather data to be aware of what's actually going on, which then you can use for self-development or for improving relationships, whatever the implication might be.
3: This is probably a good segue in a sense to a question that I've been kind of haunted by, uh, especially in the last couple of years. It's basically this question that is applied to myself and to you, Dan, and to so many people who've been involved in psychology, self-help, the movement of the Eastern traditions into the West. In other words, just to mark the time, let's say 25 years or so ago when emotional intelligence was first published, over the last 25 years, Oprah, books, programs, trainings, psychotherapy, around the world, let's just take America, say, has been a very powerful influence on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm not sure that the average person walking down the street is experiencing any more well-being or emotional intelligence or self-regulation today than they did 25 years ago. And I just wonder about those two side-by-side and what you think about it. And I have friends who say it's not a critique because if it weren't for all of us, things would be so much worse than they already are. But anyway, but even more broadly, what do you think about it from a policy level as well? How can we help these virtuous practices that at this point have tremendous evidence supporting them broadly, how can we help them have even more impact in the next 25
2: years? Well, first of all, I don't see those two trends in opposition. Mm -hmm. I see them as directly related. I think that the increase in stress and anxiety and angst and worry that's going on in the world, rightfully Mm -hmm. so, the world is actually heating up at a Rate, which is very scary if you think about it. There's lots of things, you know, us, them, hatreds are more visible than in my memory, mm-hmm. and so on. The world is a tougher and tougher place to be in, which I think leads more and more people to want to find some way to manage their own anxiety, to manage their own inner world, and actually to be benevolent, not just to manage myself, but to do it for the greater good. However, that number of people, I think, is very small in proportion to the number of Mm. people who are suffering. Mm. And I don't think that it's reached a critical, nearly anywhere near a critical mass that can turn it around for everybody. Actually, this is one reason I'm pretty passionate about getting programs in what's called social emotional learning into Mm, schools, mm -hmm. because I think it's a long game. I don't think we're going to fix it tomorrow. I don't think we'll fix it next year but we may fix it next 10 to 20. And a social emotional learning basically takes emotional intelligence and breaks it down in a developmentally appropriate way so the kids from, you know, five to 18 can learn how to manage themselves better, how to be more empathic, how to get along, how to make good social decisions. You know, how do you say no to drugs and keep your friends? This is a very important (laughs) question for a teenager. Sure, yeah. And that's the kind of question that's not answered in the academic curriculum it's answered in SEL.
0: That really dovetails with what I kind of saw when looking at your work, Doctor, which was this real passion for teaching, both in a direct kind of scholastic environment, as you're describing here, getting these courses and lessons into a school context, right? but also just generally. And There are probably some people who are listening who are educators and work in teaching and learning, Mm. but there are many more people listening who are either parents or want to become parents at some point. And being a parent, as I cannot speak from personal experience, but I'm inferring, is probably quite similar to being a teacher. So to ask a question out of all of this soup here, what's something that parents or adults of any stripe can do to help their children or young people in general learn these emotional intelligence skills?
2: First of all, every adult, every parent and every adult who interacts with kids needs to realize you are a model.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
2: What you embody kids pick up. You know, in a classroom, you know, the teacher may be dealing with one kid but 29 other kids are watching mm. and they're learning the same lesson. So think of yourself as a kind of a lab for how to be a human being, how to be a good human being. And then your interactions with kids will naturally reflect that. So how to raise an emotionally intelligent child starts with being an emotionally intelligent parent. Mm. Uh, and Michelle, you may have more to say on this. I'd love to hear.
1: Yeah. So. One of the things that I've done with my kids is I talk with them a lot about the work I do. And I found that it makes for interesting experiments around actually putting some of this into practice in terms that they understand. Hmm. And so just for fun, often I'll, you know, engage in some dialogue, usually around dinner or after school, about, you know, their day, my day. And I've gotten into the habit of trying to tell stories in such a way that they can then take this sort of complex idea and apply it. And so let me give you an example. Yeah, please. And this is a common one, I think. I definitely did not make this up. But uh, this idea of, you know, the aspect of our, our emotions that when we get upset and something happens. So if I notice, for example, my son getting kind of upset, he's gotten hijacked somehow we will talk about what's happening, you know, and mm, mm-hmm. asking him to sort of get in touch with what's happening emotionally in that interception. How is it feeling? Like what, you know, kind of getting into the granular, where do you feel it? And how is this manifesting? I don't use the word manifesting, but we've talked about the wise owl and then the guard dog and, mm. and this idea, Dan talks about this too. I tried it with my kids. But this idea that there's an aspect when we get upset that the voice, you know, which voice are you going to listen to, right? The one that's sort of growly and barky and, or, or can we appeal to sort of that wise side of ourselves, you know, to help calm down and observe the situation a little differently.
3: That's a lovely metaphor. That's great.
1: Yeah. So I try really to take complex ideas and, and sometimes I'll ask them, how would you like if i'm putting a presentation together they'll often see that i'm doing it I'm like what are you doing and then i'll get them well how would you explain it you know if you had to explain this to one of your peers how might you put it they come up with much yeah. better stuff than i do much
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that the the symbology that you're working with is a really great way to translate something to a younger person. That idea of where do you feel it in the body or what does it look like or how does it sound can be a really useful way to kind of characterize an emotion in a way that a child or a young person can more easily kind of interact with because emotions, of course, are these very abstract things, but they have these very concrete sensations inside of the body. So the more that we can get to the concrete from the abstract, I think the better that we can become in in working with people who are a little bit on the younger side. So that sounds like great advice to me.
1: The the only other thing I would say, the other fun thing that that I do sometimes with my kids is we'll literally physically change spots and mm-hmm. and see mm-hmm. something from different angles. And so sometimes I ask them to kind of embody the other side of something they're considering or a different point of view. And we might even get up and switch places around the table and pretend like we're coming at it from somebody else's point of view in the family. And it's really kind of funny, actually, to see what they think about my own perspective. Or if I get to play the role of my son and I'm Dylan, Dylan, you're mom, I'm you, and Sonia, you know, your dad or whatever. But this, this idea that, We could see things from different perspectives. And if we do that, what might we see that looks differently?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really lovely practice. So
3: uh, Dan, when I reflected on having this conversation with you and Michelle, looking back over the last 25 years, I think you're definitely in the top 10 people in America who's made a contribution to our well-being. I mean major contribution. Mm. So first I just want to express my gratitude there and I Oh,
2: that's very kind of you.
3: Yeah, I mean it really quite factually and and sincerely. So, as one of those people, a little thought experiment here. If you were to address the General Assembly of the United Nations, if you had a few minutes to really say <laughs> What you thought was really important for people to hear around the world, particularly at this moment in history, what would be in your heart to really say?
2: Hmm. Michelle and I are laughing because we're both speaking at the UN in two days. Oh, really? Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, not the General Assembly, though. Not the General (laughs) Assembly.
0: What a wonderful coincidence.
2: (laughs) Yeah, very interesting. I actually love what Michelle was saying about remembering to care about the well-being of other people. And I, I don't know how I would put it to the General mm. Assembly, but it would be something like, you know, there's, there's good, there's taking care of yourself, and there's a greater good. I think of those three, the greater good is the most important, particularly in these times. And whatever you can do now toward that greater good, do it. That's what I would say. Yeah.
3: That's mm. beautiful. Really good.
1: Yeah, very
3: good. Yeah, that's a lovely summary, I think. Okay, Michelle, you've got the microphone at the General Assembly.
1: Oh, goodness.
3: (laughs) (laughs) What do you say?
1: Yeah, I think we're at just such a very interesting moment in time. Yeah. We have the capacity to be heard on so many levels at a global scale. and, And I think similarly, there's a responsibility that comes with... I guess, the ability to positively impact others. And so for me, the most important thing I think that, that I would impart is just if we can have our actions be in service of what benefits others. And I, I think, you know, for a long time, I also, you know, worked in corporate spaces for a long time and, and they're, they're good. I learned a lot. But I'd really like to see business be in service, of, of the benefit of others. Like I think there's a real opportunity, for example, where we're depleting you know, our resources and there are really serious issues at hand. And if we could take a little bit of that enterprising, creative, mm-hmm. capitalistic spirit, And turn it towards what is in service of the benefit of beings and use that creativity and channel it. I I actually think all would win. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. you know the side effect would be profits, but that didn't wouldn't need to be the focus. The focus could be on fixing the things that will ensure we can be here for, for generations. Because I think what we're losing sight of is that we actually need certain things to support life, like air to breathe and clean water to drink. And we take these things for granted, but you stop taking them for granted when you don't have them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really lovely lesson for sure. Yeah. This is one of my
2: passions really, is what can we do to save the world from ourselves? And one of the things I've noticed is that the the free market, which is dominant worldwide, fa- really values transparency when it comes to fiscal data. But it doesn't value it all when it comes to environmental data. Mm. Companies on their balance sheet have something called externalities. Externalities are all the bad things they do to the environment that they don't feel <laughs> responsible for. And I think if we had ecological transparency, if We knew what companies were doing. It would create actually a new competitive arena, particularly as younger people grow into consumers. Over their lifetime, the world is supposedly going to collapse. But the company who's first to do it better said, you know, we we did this analysis. We realized that we're putting lots of carbon dioxide in there, but if we do it this way, we won't. So now we do it that way. And by the way, those other guys are still doing it the old way. What that does is make a premium, of value added for people who are helping the environment rather than hurting it. And I think the real winners will be people who have regenerative outcomes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's maybe the biggest question that we're all grappling with as a, as a society and even as a species at this point. And that's the lens at the at the largest possible level exactly yeah absolutely to kind of narrow that lens and and ask kind of the most intimate version of this question that we just asked if you had the opportunity and maybe starting with you doctor and then we'll go over to michelle mm-hmm. to go back in time and oh. talk to yourself as you know a child a young adult mm whatever you were experiencing in that moment, maybe even before you were doing those, those studies on meditators, mm-hmm. what would you want to say? What would you want to communicate to that person?
2: I would say, uh, you know, why don't you go into engineering? <laughs> <laughs>
0: learn, learn to write some code, why don't you? Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, no, and, and find a better way to do it.
0: Mm. That's really interesting. So you mean specifically going into the industrial arena and figuring out a way to improve some of the problems that we're dealing with right now. Is that—is that what you're implying?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, help solve the problem.
0: That's really fascinating.
2: I mean, I can write about it. That might mm. be motivational, but as Michelle says, it's what you actually do yeah. that matters.
0: That's really, really interesting, actually. Sorry to, I, I don't mean to prod you here, doctor, but I'm honestly yeah. really curious about that answer. Yeah. So what you're implying there is really that you think the most fundamental problems, I'm guessing, that we're addressing right now come in that arena?
2: I'm not saying that the most fundamental problems are there. I'm saying some of the more interesting
0: solutions might be there. Gotcha. All right. Awesome.
2: I think the fundamental problems have to do
0: with minds and hearts, Mm. which
2: is why I'm in psychology.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that makes really wonderful sense to me. So, Michelle, to you. Oh,
1: goodness. (laughs) That's a particularly difficult question. And I think the reason it's difficult is because I might have been wiser when I was younger. Mm. (laughs) I think I would tell myself, my younger self, I don't have to spend so much time in corporate America. I don't Mm. have to um, get so much experience like that. It was helpful. It was helpful. But I think I thought in my head I needed more and more experience. And, you know, like I just wasn't qualified enough.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't think that's true, and I I meet you know sort of the younger generations that we're now hiring. I love them so much. Like I'm like, Mm. we're gonna save the world because you have a set of values and like a stick with itness and like a not compromising for any reason. It's really important.
0: Yeah, I think that's really lovely, and is actually a bit of a personal reflection for me at the moment. So thank you for speaking to some of the problems that I'm. I'm attempting to manage inside of my own life with some of these questions. So that was really wonderful. We're wandering toward the end of our time here. And I want to really kind of fully give you guys an opportunity to speak about the work that you're doing these days. I know, Michelle, that you're highly involved with these training programs and online resources that you're providing oriented around emotional intelligence. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to speak to that for a minute.
1: Well, it was a little over three years ago that Dan and his son Hanuman and I started talking. And realizing that we were at this sort of nexus, and you know, it was it's beautiful to look back on what brought us together to do this work. And I think it is a few things I'd articulated as a few things. I'd love to hear Dan's perspective, but it's this idea of democratizing EI mm. and making it available to to broader society and not just the upper echelons of leadership. And the second point is to take this beautiful work that Dan has done in his life and to bring it alive in a way where now it's not so much that people don't, you know, have never heard of emotional intelligence. They've usually heard about it, but then they're so excited. Like, how do I take this into my life? And so we thought there was just this wonderful opportunity to come together and create mechanisms for people to do that. And, regardless of whether they were you know, leaders in corporations. We're all leaders in, in one or more aspects of our own lives. And so mm. being able to ground these concepts in a way that allow you to apply them. And so all of our programs that we've created from this online program I've mentioned to the coaching certification, to the in-person trainings, they're in service of that. They're in service of doing more than just talking about a thing and understanding it in election.
3: Great. That's great. Thank you. And people can learn more about that right at your website. Yes. And we'll include that in the show notes, but maybe just say it out loud as well.
1: Sure, of course. So keystepmedia.com mm-hmm. altogether. We're getting ready to rebrand because Keystep Media is the publishing company, actually, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Dan's son started oh, great. some time ago. And we will be Goldman EI. We'll notify folks when we have the website ready. But right now, everything's under keystepmedia.com. And if you're interested in becoming a coach, we have you know our first cohort underway. Our second's going to start in July in Vienna. Wow. Soon we'll be advertising for our third, which will be back in the U.S. And um, we have all kinds of people going through the program. We have physicians, teachers, superintendents. Former CEOs, we have people who are starting off in their careers and want to be coaches. We have just so many different types of people who want to go deep into this work and they're able to do that.
0: Yeah, that's really fantastic. It's a fantastic offering to have available to people. To kind of bring us to a close here today, I just want to really thank both of you, Dr. Goldman, Michelle, for taking the time to be with us today. I thought it was extremely interesting. We went very expansive with some of the topics, which I truly loved. And again, authentically, just thank you for doing this.
1: Likewise.
0: Thank you for having us.
1: It was fun. Thank you.
0: Thank you. That's it for today's episode with Daniel Goleman and Michelle Navarez. We started by framing emotional intelligence and particularly emphasizing its two halves, personal introspection and interoception, and its implications and uses in social functioning. We then spent some time discussing specific tactics we can use to increase our own baseline of emotional intelligence or teach it to other people. Part of that conversation veered into a discussion on whether people are truly more emotionally intelligent these days with all the resources that are now available to them versus 25 years ago when emotional intelligence came out. I personally really enjoyed when Dan and Michelle shared about what they would say if given the opportunity to address the United Nations or some other large body of people in the world, and then the messages they'd leave a younger version of themselves with. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. We'll be back later in the week with a short Just One Thing episode with Dan and Michelle. I'd also like to remind you about Rick's monthly meditation program. It's still accepting registrations and is a wonderful resource for anyone who's interested in carving out some consistent time each month for focused meditation. I'll leave a link to that in the description of today's podcast, and there's also a discount code available, which you'll find there. Until next time, thanks for listening.